Please do take a seat. It's a great joy to be with you. If you're new here this morning, do come and introduce yourself to me and Catherine at the end of the service. Uh, my name is Mike Barton. I'm a curate, um, which many of you know means a vicar's apprentice. And um, it's good to have the chance to uh, uh, speak to you today. And uh, we're going to be looking at that passage in page 1035. So if you've closed your Bibles, can you open them back up? So in our passage this morning, Jesus and a woman in the midst of extreme sorrow meet. Travelling in one direction, there's a crowd following Jesus, all jubilant at the prospect of hearing Jesus preach the word of God to the people of Nain. Travelling in the other direction, though, there's a wailing funeral procession supporting a grieving widow who's lost her only son. We're going to explore what happens as these two contrasting crowds meet. And as we look, it's impossible to ignore the heightened emotion involved. One crowd is full of anticipation, but the other is filled with despair. So from the outset, it's good to acknowledge that each of us will approach this passage with a range of emotions between these extremes. Every Sunday, when we gather as a community, different things have happened to us during the previous week. I hope some of you arrived this morning feeling upbeat and excited about the prospect of hearing God's word. But I recognise that others may feel fragile, and this passage will evoke memories of loved ones you've lost, for whom healing unfortunately didn't come. This morning, I recognise there will be unanswered questions you've still not resolved with God. This is what it's like, this is what it feels like to be part of the body of Christ. When we meet together, we share in the joy and the pain. And today, this morning, we're going to go through that too. So this passage is likely to bring up a range of emotions and therefore I, I ask you to bear with the inadequacy of my words. Let me give you a sense though of where we're going up front. We're going to see a community gathering round to support a widow in deep grief. And then overlaying this, we're going to see the difference it makes when Jesus enters into the picture. We're going to start, though, where Christian theologian Tom Wright recommends, by entering into the story itself and allowing its full force to sweep over us. We're going to walk with the grieving widow for a while. Once this widow had a lot to live for. She had a life with her husband, the proud mother of a son, in a largely patriarchal society, her future was relatively secure. She was protected. Then misfortune struck. We don't know why, but her husband died. Life was much emptier. But still she had her son. Between them, they could probably earn enough to put food on the table. And her spirits would lift as she watched him grow into a man. 
one day he'd marry and she'd become part of a new family. That was the hope until devastation struck. Why God? Why me? Why did you have to take my son? Don't you care? Don't you see? It's not right. It's not fair what you've done. And so now, she finds herself at the front of a funeral procession, leading a beer with her lifeless son laid on top. It's a hot day in Nain, which makes the salt in her tears sting even more. A large crowd is gathered round her as community, but she feels exposed and alone. She's making her way from her family home, out of the town gate to trace the same route she took to bury her husband before, out to the burial plot in the small cave in the hillside. And perhaps this time she thinks when she gets there that she too might curl up and die. Like Hagar and Ishmael, abandoned in the wilderness, she's engulfed in sorrow. She's afraid that there's no point going on. Meanwhile, her name community are doing their best to console and support. Death in a small Middle Eastern community touches everyone, and everyone has a role to play. Professional mourners and wailers could be in the procession, making as much noise as possible so the true grievers could bear their souls without fear of shame or embarrassment. And the circumstances of this widow's grief and plight mean that a large crowd has turned up. The community of Nain are doing what they could, gathering round her to offer support. So when Jesus arrives at the Nain town gate, he sees a loving community already in place. At this point, I want to step out of our story for a moment to help us breathe. Because I want to give testament to the love that exists in this community here. Many times I've seen people demonstrate care for those in in need of help, great or small, whether it's presence at a funeral to show support, the offer of a listening ear or shoulder to cry on, company for the lonely, meals ministry with those, for those with little energy to cook, financial assistance for those struggling to make ends meet, a lift to a difficult hospital appointment, support for a refugee family, or clothes collections for those stranded fleeing violence in Syria. These things and more all happen here. Holy Trinity is much more than a turn-up on Sunday church. Remember this year's vision. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. In many ways, our love for one another already shows. But I believe it could grow even deeper still. And if you've got ideas how we can make that happen together, then do let me know. Let's step back into the story as we observe Jesus' grief. No doubt Jesus travelled to Nain, which is about five miles north-southeast uh, of Nazareth, with a particular purpose in mind. He'd come with a crowd of followers to proclaim the good news of the kingdom and to attract more followers to his side. 
But when he arrives at the Nain town gate, he's stopped in his tracks. And we see firsthand the humanity of God's own son. Verse 13 says, When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. This description of Jesus' feelings is perhaps too gentle compared with the gut-wrenching emotion the original Greek text suggests. More literally, it says Jesus' bowels yearned. It was a guttural groan. I recently read an article which talked to us about us having something like a second brain in our stomachs. This is what gives us the feeling of butterflies when we're nervous. Or it makes us feel sick to the pit of our stomachs when we're deeply concerned. When Jesus sees the widow's distress, he's gutted by the impact of her son's death. He's horrified because he knows God didn't create things to be this way. In the beginning, God created us to live forever in relationship with him. But just like the first Adam, our sin separates us from God. Cut off from God, death is the reality we face when we don't know God's life-giving love. So in the widow's sobbing, Jesus witnesses the pain of separation at its most raw. Perhaps this makes Jesus think ahead too to his own death on the cross and what it's going to cost his own mother Mary as she has to think about that. Jesus is appalled by the offence of sin and the sorrow it continues to wreak in the world. And so instinctively, he acts with compassion to show in his presence, death has no victory. In supporting the widow, Jesus reveals his divinity. Jesus helps the widow in a way that is neither asked for nor expected. And if he wasn't the son of God, his actions would be deemed highly offensive to the onlooking crowds. Firstly, he says, don't cry which would be supremely cruel if he couldn't do anything about it, because her son's death means that's the end of her family line. Secondly, he touches the bier, making the funeral procession stop and himself ritually unclean. What right does Jesus have to take charge and halt proceedings in such a way? Common decency dictates what he's doing is all wrong. But while the crowd and the corpse lay motionless, Jesus speaks words of life to the young widow's son. Young man, I say to you, get up. At Jesus' command, the widow's son is restored. The dead man sat up and began to talk which is probably a lot more than anybody else could have done at the time. And we're told that Jesus gave the young man back to his mother. Jesus gave the young man back to his mother. Can you imagine there can't be many more beautiful scenes in the world? I imagine Jesus taking the young man's hand 
urging him to slide off the bier and place his feet on the ground. Jesus would have then placed the young man's hand back into his mother's. It's okay. Take it. See, I told you, don't cry. I've made everything well. Your son is restored. It's a mind-blowing scene which shocks everyone all round. Jesus honoured the love that already existed in the community, but did what no one else in the community could. He raised the widow's son from the dead. In response, everyone is filled with awe and praise to God. Maybe you've been in a cathedral and witnessed lots of people singing beautiful hymns. It might have been something like that. The 2,000 years ago equivalent of songs of praise. You see, it's not just the widow's son that's restored back to life. A new hope is restored to the community too. A great prophet has emerged among us, they say, remembering the stories of God's prophets, Elijah and Elisha, raising the dead. God has come to help his people. The community has been revived. Sin has not had the last word. And news of what Jesus did spreads far and wide. The two contrasting crowds who were in such different emotional spaces when they first met now form one community witnessing to what Jesus has done. So how can we apply this passage to our own lives today? Because the danger after being so drawn in is that we're suddenly snapped back to reality and we dismiss or forget the truth that our gospel writer Luke wanted us to see. I've got three points of application to make. Firstly, I want to deal with the thorny issue of why those we love still die, even when we pray to God that he would restore them back to health. As an area coordinator with Tear Fund in Dye 4, my team and I once travelled to a village on the outskirts of our field area to drop off some supplies. And before we left, I took a last-minute decision to take uh, one of our health promotion workers with us called Unbucket, um, because her family lived there. We arrived literally at the village gates in good spirits three hours later. But it was clear as we saw the, the, the village ahead of us, there was a lot of commotion going on, and it seemed that all was not well. We found out that tragedy had struck earlier that morning. A young woman from the village had uh, been riding on the back of a 4x4, four four, but the roads there are very bumpy, and the vehicle would have been travelling fast. She lost her grip, she fell off, she broke her neck, and she died. We quickly learned that that young woman was Unbucket's sister. The sorrow was intense. And in the middle of all the pain of Unbucket's family, the family still wanted to host us too. I can, I can remember feeling so helpless as I recalled the story, this story, of the widow of Nain. 
And I certainly wasn't about to do anything faith-filled or offensive like Jesus uh, went to do. But I did pray so hard for a miracle that somehow Jesus would step in and raise this young woman back to life. Naively, maybe, the miraculous miracle never came. The young woman was buried a few hours later in accordance with Muslim tradition. So why doesn't Jesus come down and intervene when strategy strikes? Why doesn't he make himself more obviously known? I'm not sure I'll ever know the answer to this. But I do know that sometimes God shows us small mercies in the midst of tragedy. Tiny glimmers of hope in the midst of the darkness. Because we'd taken Unbucket with us, she was able to join her family at their time of deepest grief. She was there for the funeral. Otherwise, that wouldn't have been the case. For that, Unbucket was grateful. And somehow, we saw God's hand in that. Maybe you can relate a little as you think about the small mercies that have helped you cling to faith in times of great sadness and loss. The other observation that I want to make is that over all four Gospels, there are only three recorded incidents of Jesus raising others from the dead. They are Jairus' daughter, Lazarus, and this one, the son of the widow of Nain. For some reason, 2,000 years ago, Jesus didn't make raising the dead then the normal pattern for his earthly ministry. Rather, these isolated incidents are to be seen, and our gospel writers record them as a foretaste of what is to come with our final resurrection in Jesus Christ, when we're raised to new life with him. Meanwhile, Jesus is at work through his spirit in the process of giving new birth. Jesus is in the business of transforming lives so that people who were once enemies of God are now brought back into relationship with him to know him as friends. This happens every time someone prays the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. When we ask for Jesus to enter into our life, and renew our relationship with God, we get that new birth that assures us of our future life with him to come. Some of you may be inclined to pray this for the first time today, or maybe to renew that prayer in your heart. The second application I want to draw from the story is to know how Jesus gives the widow's son back to her and to her community. Up to this point in Luke's Gospel, there have been lots of stories about Jesus coming to preach the word of God and calling followers outwards to follow him wherever he goes. Here, however, he gives the widow's son back to his mother after he's restored to be a witness and serve within his own community. The news about Jesus still spreads about, uh, throughout Judea and the surrounding country. 
But for the moment, the role of the widow's son is to remain in situ with his mum. Now, perhaps some of you are in the midst of making a bit of a major decision yourself. Should I stay in Claygate or, or should I leave? Is God asking me to go elsewhere, maybe? Well, I don't want you to hear this morning's passage and think that uh, this is designed for you. But what I do want to say is this always uh, equally valid to remain where you are as well as going elsewhere to serve. You could be God's person at God's time in God's place here in Claygate right now, today. And as I was thinking through this idea, it reminded me the way of a speaker works. I don't know if ever you've ever taken the front cover off a speaker. Well, inside the speaker, there's a cone, isn't there? And the cone pulsates as the sound travels outwards. But the speaker unit remains fixed in place. If the music is good, then people will hear it and they'll gather in to listen more. I want this to be an encouragement for you. If you remain obedient to Jesus where you are, then your faith will pulsate and others will be drawn close in to listen with the message and life you have to share. And if your sound is sweet, I'd love you to turn up the wattage a bit too, to attract others far and wide. My third and final application is to say that a loving community without Jesus can only get you so far. The people of Nain did right by the grieving widow. They did what they could. They turned up in large numbers to help her mourn her terrible loss. They all headed out of the town city gate in one direction. They knew what their culture expected as they all gathered and nothing unexpected would happen. You see, it's only when Jesus turned up with his crowd of followers that the situation was turned on its head. An amazing hope was restored to the community that wasn't asked for or imagined. I'd like this to serve as a metaphor for the impact, impact Holy Trinity could have if we as believers love and serve our wider community for God. Perhaps it could be said of this church that God has come near through his people here. So when we see something that just isn't right or doesn't sit comfortably with our spirits inside, we can be asking the question, what would Jesus do? And if it's within our power to help, then we could Perhaps we might be compelled to help in the most generous or unexpected of ways. However, even doing the simplest of things can add just a little change of direction to a person's life that they'd never seen before. Cooking a meal, offering to babysit, paying a bill, providing some company or mowing a lawn can make an extraordinary difference to those who feel overwhelmed and out of control. Perhaps you could be the Jesus difference to someone who's not encountered the love of God before. 
there will of course be situations we meet when our heart goes out to the person but we've no clue whatsoever how we can help. When this happens, we always remember the gift of prayer. We just don't know what small mercies God might be working in when we pray, or even if he's going to work a miracle that we could have never seen or expected before. Just as it says in Ephesians, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So to conclude, today we've seen the community of Nain lovingly gathering around a widow in the distress of losing her son. Then they met Jesus and everything changed. Jesus gave the son back to his mother and the whole community was restored. We've seen Jesus' abhorrence at the separation of death. But this passage gives us a foretaste of our resurrection to come. Questions of why bad things happen remain unresolved. But God is still present in the small mercies we see. In the meantime, we're much more than a crowd that follows the cultural flow. We're a unique community that's called to serve Jesus in simple and extraordinary ways. Coupled with faithful prayer, this is now our act of worship and witness to him. Let's continue in that today. Amen.